listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Esther Rosenfield. I'm here with Soren Howe. We're talking about episode six of season three, A Rich Find, directed by Tim Hunter, written by Alex Lambert. Um, this episode aired one day after my 12th birthday. That's a fun <laughs> fact for you. I like, to, I like to open the episode with a fun personal anecdote. Yeah, um, just to, to, <laughs> to, to date yourself or to uh, reveal, I guess, how um, how youthful we still are. So yeah, this is a uh, it's a uh, it's directed by Tim Hunter. Uh, this is his only uh, Deadwood credit, uh, and it's the same for for Alex Lambert, uh, who so she's a um, a a screenwriter who's also directed and produced a few things. Uh, she wrote a few episodes of um, John from Cincinnati as well, by the way. Yeah. Um, and but this is her only uh, her only uh, Deadwood credit as well. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird one-off episode where just two people popped in and popped out, and that was their entire interaction with the with the show. Usually, when that happens, it's um, you know, you get like the Michael Amareda, or like with the pilot, you got Walter Hill, mm. um, sort of feature directors, people who are kind of established. Um, in the world of film, anyway. Uh, Tim Hunter is established in the world of television, though. He's yep. one of these, you know, guys who just always works. He directed a bunch of episodes of Twin Peaks, actually. Oh, no um, kidding. A bunch of episodes of Mad Men. He, he kind of, his IMDb's kind of all over the place. He'll dip in for just an episode in a lot of shows. Like he did, you know, like we, something we mentioned a week or two ago, he did direct an episode of Glee. Um, <laughs> that's on his resume. And he's direct, and yeah, just kind of popped in for, for one episode of Deadwood, I guess. Um, interesting, yeah. He, because we kind of think of HBO shows as having like a stable of directors. It's uh, And we think of Deadwood that way too. When they pull someone, it's usually for a particular reason. It's like, oh, it's a special thing that we're getting Michael Almoreda to direct this episode. Um, Tim Hunter is not really like, obviously he's worked, like I say, he's worked a lot, but he doesn't really have a... Uh, you don't think of him as like an auteur, I guess. Um, and I didn't find too much notable about the direction of this episode, which maybe really? that speaks to personal. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a couple things, but nothing that I really took particular note of. Oh, wow. That's, in- that's interesting that you say that. Cause I, I, uh, yeah, I thought he was, I thought he did really, there was some, there was some like mise-en-scene things, you know, to do with, uh, uh, camera work, but then also, well, not camera work, I suppose, really just framing, um, camera work itself, I guess, the movement of the camera wasn't particularly, um, I guess, notable in this episode, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, I thought there were so many fascinating (laughs) directorial choices, I have to imagine, that were done, if not on the front of what kind of performances were asked of these actors, um, because I thought everybody did an unbelievable job, um, but also what <laughs> what the camera decides to focus on. So, like for example, the the thing that comes to mind most obviously is uh, when Fields and uh, Odell are speaking uh, at one point in the episode, uh, and of course we'll we'll touch on this whole plotline. But when they're speaking in the in the the bar. Uh, and the the camera for two separate shots hangs on Michael Harney, just making the most absurd series of faces. Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, it's just so weird. Like, such a it was funny and weird, and also a strange thing to do with this character who's, you know, he's a villain. Like he's a bad guy. Um, not like the big bad of the show, but he's you know not not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but they kind of play him this really absurd, uh, very I think I would say mocking light. Um, but also it's just really like cartoonish, and it's not something you see. But like other directors didn't do anything like that. You know what I mean? Just in terms of performance. And then obviously, like I said, there's some crazy shots even just in the very beginning. This first scene with uh, with Hurst in the um, in the jail cell. Uh, there's a shot that. Um, where he's uh, framed by the bars of the cell. And then, I don't know, like, dark. there's a lot of plays with darkness in this episode, surrounding characters. It's like there's a close-up of Alma in one scene where she's sent Trixie away and she's sort of lost in darkness and there's this close-up. And when it zooms out, it shows that it's just her in the bank against, like, a normal brown wood backdrop. But because it's so close-up, the backdrop looks really like foreboding and opaque so you can't see it so she's just sort of it's sort of like what you might see in like an anime cutscene or something of somebody sort of uh like lost in their mind kind of thing and it's all done just through sort of an optical trick um but yeah there's a, a similar sort of thing there's another scene where uh, where the uh, spyglass is following hearst and that's a, a framing from uh, from uh, evie farnham when he's following him later in uh, in the hotel, and then early on, Hearst is also framed that way in almost a letterbox format, where the there's so much darkness on the top and bottom of the screen, and then you have the jail cell bars as well that he's almost like in a little box in the center of the screen. It's really it's it's cool. I'll I'll link to these shots for for folks if they if they miss them when they when they saw the episode. But yeah, there's a lot of like kind of cool plays like that that I that I found engaging. So yeah, I mean he's you know. We're never going to see him again, I guess, in the context of the show. But I, I, I enjoyed what what he had to do with the episode. So there's one thing I liked that he did. That um, the one thing I did note is in this early scene where Al comes to the Bullock House uh, during his conversation with Seth, he keeps cutting back to Martha, who's listening in from upstairs. And I think that's a really good detail because a lot of shows would sort of forget about her presence, like it doesn't matter in the context of the just these two guys are talking. Um, and it doesn't really have any bearing on anything. It's just, impo- you know, it doesn't forget that she's a character and that she has an investment in what happens next and what they're talking about, specifically because they're talking about whether or not Seth is going to leave, flee the camp. Um, so I think it's really good. It's as I wish I could think of a, an adjective, but it's, a, it is a <laughs> good directorial decision to keep her part of the scene to not sort of forget uh, and especially in in just in terms of a gender sense, not to just kind of have her scuttle off mm. while the men are talking, to keep her in the loop, um, even if it doesn't really have any narrative bearing, just to, you know, remember that she is a character whose perspective matters, and that perspective is obviously informed by what she's hearing going on. So I did like that, um, and that's something that doesn't even really come from a script necessarily, That that could be something that could just be a directorial choice. For sure, yeah, and and I don't know that she learns anything more than what you know. Seth says it's going to get bad, and then Al comes in and goes, "Listen, it's going to get real bad." Mm-hmm. So I don't, it's not that she learns that much more, but maybe it's confirmed that this is this is serious um, for her. But yeah, no, I, I I had the same feeling where I was like, uh, you know, 
engage, you know, we, Martha, it certainly last season was a much more significant character. She sort of faded out a bit because she's, she just hasn't had a, a lot to do. Um, and, you know, it's little moments can really help keep a character alive, I guess, in the background, uh, uh, as the, as the show progresses, because, you know, <laughs> It can happen on an, in an ensemble cast. I know it's amazing, but it can happen where <laughs> you leave a character for seasons and just don't develop them at all, and then you come back to their plot, their uh, their their arc, and you go, ah, but don't you remember from three seasons ago when this thing happened? Mm-hmm. Here's the conclusion to it. Well, I can't uh, think of any examples. But, I can't think um, of any examples off the top of my head, but boy, it just seems so vivid in my head. So yeah, no, it's important to have little moments like that. Um, of course, we had, you know, just in terms of, you know, gender splits in this episode, there's an incredible amount of back and forth with a whole bunch of different characters. Um, and I think that, you know, the show's always done a really good job with that. And there's been an introduction of so many more female characters over the course of the, the series who have really become their own person, right? Like, in many ways, we haven't seen Joni so much in the past couple episodes. So she's in the end of this one. But she's in many ways supplanted Sai as like a way more interesting character, right? Because like Sai at this point, what the hell is he even doing? Yeah. Um, but Joni, you're still, you know, you're like, where is she? You know, how is she going to build a life for herself? And she's she's sort of taken over that. So like, there's been a sort of a shift, I would say, in in focus in, in these characters. Um, yeah. And the other thing, I I just and by the way, another shot I really liked was the the shot in the puddle of uh, Leon talking to himself. Really oh, yeah, yeah. I, I liked that, that scene. A lot, of, a lot of good stuff like that. But um, uh, another thing that I, I noticed uh, uh, in two different occasions in this episode is um, uh, Hurst in the beginning when he's he's in this jail cell, he really seems to me, and maybe this is me super, but something about his movements and he's sort of like shifting around the, ce- the cell, he really seems like uh, almost like gorilla like like there's like he's like a caged animal right and there's this for me in this episode that, that at least two instances of this maybe there's more of this kind of animal like um portrayal of character so the other one of course is when dan comes out of his room sort of stumbling forward and looks like a wounded bear or something <laughs> just sort of wandering towards the bar uh, in this very dramatic uh, moment where he has no shirt on, but he has this like fur wrapped around him. So it's like obviously clearly very animalistic. Um, and of course that speaks to like how he's feeling and this primal sort of thing. But I, I think that the the imagery is meant to tap into this primal sort of uh, nature of these characters in both instances, right? It's Hearst, you know, feeling like he's been done this indignity, which is sometimes... <laughs> yeah, I mean, the performances are great this episode. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I didn't really... I mean, you know, this is something we've talked about in the past, what directors can bring to a performance. I didn't really consider... It didn't seem out of the ordinary to me how good the performances are, I guess, which is why I didn't really didn't really jump out at me that that might be a Tim Hunter thing as much as just an, uh, a cast thing. But maybe that's unfair, you know. You don't get a great performance without a great director most of the time. I mean, let's put it. Let's be very clear. I, I've, as I've said in the past, I've never thought these characters of these actors have ever delivered bad performances. But uh, they've delivered different performances, and I did feel yeah. like it was a bit not, not in big ways, but in small ways. I thought there was, and also what the cat, you know, what the, you know, and this is 
it's it's a classic thing with film, right? Is it the editing? Is it the director? Is it the cinematographer? Right? We we always we're always crediting the director on all these choices, but of course the cinematographer plays a huge role and all these other things. So it's hard to say really, like what the what the episode focuses on in terms of performance, uh, like facial expressions, for example, is like a, that's a particular choice. And who knows? Maybe it was just Michael Harney was pulling faces, and they were like, "Hey, let's edit that part in because that's a funny way of." you know, having this scene happen. Uh, or or maybe it was in, you know, entirely Tim Hunter going, you know, this is how I want this scene to sort of to play out. So uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, why don't you, you feel free? Let's let's introduce the, uh, the main crux of the episode. Well, the main, main thing, I guess, and most episodes don't have a main thing, which mm. makes this kind of unusual. Um, although I guess more and more this season, now that I think about it, um, then this is, I think a more traditional Deadwood episode and that it has a lot of like pieces, a lot, like we, like we say, it has a lot of little things, right? Mm. But yeah, no, the main thing is that Aunt Lou's son, Odell has come to town. He's apparently returning from Liberia. Um, and he, well, I say he has a proposition for Hearst. He's the implication is that he is try, going to try and con Hearst, um, which is a great decision. <laughs> um, mm. I feel great about his future, and not at all. And I was not at all paralyzed with anxiety during half of his scenes in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's fun, you know. When he first appeared, we talked about last week, or I, I think I mentioned like. With Hostetler's death, we lose one of the few black characters on the show. <laughs> so I do think it's funny that the next episode, one literally rides into town. Yep. Um, I had the same also, exact thought because of our discussion. And also the way he's at, that the way he's introduced is almost as punchline to Steve uh, rambling about Hostetler's death. Exactly. That he, then he appears, and, and Steve is obviously horrified. And by the way, this is further commentary on that, you know, on that paradigm we talked about last episode in terms of how Hostetler's death comes about and all the rest of it is that, you know, it's pretty heavily implied that Steve killed him, right? Effectively. And in this episode, we get a confirmation that that is what is intended as the message. And not only that, and this is what I think is like a, a cool little point. It's a small point, which is that Steve is telling a different story about what happened even though, even if, even if he told the exact story of what did happen, there's no way he'd ever be held legally culpable. So this isn't about saving his own skin legally or physically. This is just about his conscience. He knows what he did to drive Hostel, and he has to tell a different story about how Hostetler fell over or whatever and, and accidentally shot himself. Because that is necessary for him in his head, because he knows what really happened. And that idea that folks like that actually know you know what they've you know when they've pushed the the line too far and have ended up causing someone's death doesn't change the behavior but you have steve actually and there's there's one moment where he has he makes this incredibly um not self-aware uh statement about how um, he says uh look inward why don't you instead of always blaming the other which yeah, is like obviously was, about himself. Wow. <laughs> it's just like, 
and obviously it's him talking to himself, but he just can't admit it. And it's just it it just show it's a, it's this dimension to Steve actually that we haven't really seen, but it's also this comment you know this this fundamental commentary about who he about about how that how one processes that kind of behavior and uh, and the long term consequences. And then just you know and it's you know the way it manifests in real life and. And from what I understand is that people just double down. They realize what they've done and then they just go, well, I'm all, you know, in for a penny and for a pound kind of thing. So anyway, um, yeah, so we have well, Odell it's and it's, a, well, ahead. I just want to say on that scene, like we have this moment where Steve is very clearly what he does in that scene is what a guilty, not what a guilty person does, but what a person who is feeling guilty does. Indeed. He is rambling to absolutely no one talking about how my conscience is clear and I had nothing to do with yep. it. And you know, my, my heart, is, my hands are clean. I think he literally says that he literally says um, my hands are clean. Yes. And of course, like he would never do that unless he felt exactly the, he doth protest too much as, as, yeah, exactly. as, the, as they say. So I think that that is not really, it goes, I'm not, it doesn't go unexplored in the episode, but I think it casts a certain light on, what we see of him throughout the rest of the episode, like you mm. pointed out, he's very cartoonish. Uh, he's very kind of absurd in his behavior and his facial expressions. And I think that this plays into the fact that he is wrestling with the fact that he does on some level feel bad about what happened to Hostetler and he feels responsible. Um, I think the easy, and I don't think that this is like the start of the Steve redemption arc. Obviously, I don't think there's any <laughs> sure universe. There, I don't think there's any universe in which the show like tries to pull that. But I do think that it is a better turn for him than the obvious turn, which would have been for him to just genuinely not care and go on with his life and just keep being racist. Um, I don't think he's going to stop being racist, but I do think that this is going to weigh on him in a particular way and is going to, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe maybe affect his behavior. I mean, we'll see, but I think it is, it is again, you know, <laughs> to put it as simply as possible, it's good writing. I, I, I completely agree. I actually don't even know that we need anything more from Steve. I think it in and of itself, we, we, we certainly could. And there's, I think an infinite well to be dug there. Not that we need Steve to continue being racist as like a, a, a plot line in the show, but you could, mind that story in a lot of different ways um, and explore it further. But I think even just the simple commentary that even Steve knows what he did was wrong and that he has culpability in the death of someone that he didn't physically actually hurt is, well, at least, you know, not, not with his hands, you know, arguably with his, his words um, is uh, in itself. Yeah. Like I said, it's in itself a commentary. So yeah, I mean, we'll see if that, uh, I mean, clearly, they're not like writing Steve off. He hasn't like left town or been arrested or anything. They're they're they kept him in an entire scene where he actually had nothing to do with what was going on. So they could have kept him out of it. Um, they're also sort of hinting at boiling tensions between him and his very few. I wouldn't call them friends, but associates in the town. So I think that also could come to a head at some point. Um, so yeah, we have uh, uh, the the arrival of Odell as you mentioned, and uh, interestingly, this is a. Uh, Omar Gooding, who is, I believe, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s brother. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I did not know he had a brother. There's not really a resemblance, I don't think. I have to really? Look up. No, no, I can, well, I can see it. I can Let see me it. look up a picture of him, because I'm not... Maybe I'm not picturing him right. 
Let me look at him again. Okay. No, there totally <laughs> is. No, now that I'm like, now that now that I know that and I'm looking at him, I can definitely see it, yeah. Yeah, they've got the same smile. You can see it in the smile for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and uh, I love how this unfolds. It's so interesting. This it's whole... tense. I was, I was, part of the reason I was, I'm going into this episode kind of like, my nerves are kind of jangled. It's like, mm. it's, and which is funny because this, this show obviously does that a lot, but usually I'm able to kind of like, usually there's some, if not catharsis, then there is just some like outlet for it. Something will happen. Mm. Um, but the, we don't see the conclusion of this. Nope. This is obviously an They all just thing. go into the hotel and then we, <laughs> it lights out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I just end the episode still in that state of like tension and, and nervousness. It's, ugh, it's, Got me all discombobulated. It's like, it's like the intermission in a play or something, you know, where it's like characters yeah. have converged on like a, you know, and but and then, you know, curtains and wait till next week <laughs> <laughs> um, or wait, wait till the, the second half. So, yeah, no, it's um, it's it's crazy. But I, what I love about this is how we learn so many things about Aunt Lou. Right. So it turns out that this new person in town is Aunt Lou's son and that he was in Liberia, which is crazy. And then you start to actually, at first they're very, um, you know, there's a really good sort of genuine relationship between these two people, right? Between mother and son. And it seems very heartwarming and sweet. Um, a little bit of a tense interaction with Hearst, who is on the warpath, but generally speaking, it's, it's, it's good. But then Aunt Lou is like, um, you couldn't possibly have known I was here because it takes X amount of time, which is 27 days, uh, since I've last you know, sent you a letter and you couldn't have gotten here in the 27 days in the intervening time from Liberia all the way to Deadwood. There's just no way. Um, so what the hell? Uh, and it, you can see the shift, you know, talk about playing roles and all the rest of it. Or you can just see the shift in Odell to go from this, you know, this loving son who's, He's just here to see his, uh, just here to see his mom, and it turns out, in fact, he's actually really just here to see Hearst. It turns out his mom was there. He probably figured that was a possibility, but the reality is that he was here to see Hearst, and and that that sort of mask fades away, and it fades away in his attitude and how he talks. You know, he immediately goes for a drink, and he he's just it's this. You know, he shows up as sort of a kid. Right. That's sort of, you know, because he's the son and whatever. Um, but, you know, she realizes like this is a full grown man now. And who knows the last time she saw him um, who immediately goes for a drink as soon as the, that mask falls away is immediately, you know, sort of uh, sacrilegious and how he talks. And um, like that contrast suddenly emerges between these two characters and then you realize what he's actually going to do. And as you said, that tension really builds. But I like that it's sort of like this con that gets revealed between Odell and his mother. Like, forget about Hearst. And it's a, it's a funny way to introduce a character into a story. Yeah, and I mean, it's... Hmm. It is so obviously setting up for tragedy. Like, the, th- the thing with Hostetler was kind of... It was surprising in the moment, but it was kind of, I guess it was kind of inevitable. Mm. Um, but it was not something you could have guessed the instant that Hostetler appeared on the show. 
Whereas it is very, very clear where this is going with Hotel and Hearst. Like, this is not going to end well. Mm. Um, which is where that tension comes from. Um, which is effective, you know? It is it is effective at, at making you really anxious. Because you're like, this is... He, he's he's dead. He's He's dead from the second he steps foot in the hotel. But the tension comes from, like... How is that go? How is it going to boil over? How is it finally going to ha- happen when it does? What impact is that going to have on uh, Aunt Lou? Because this is gonna, there's going to be ramifications for her, obviously, mm. and just for everybody, and just for everybody else on the town, ta- everybody who has come into contact with him. How is that going to roll over on them? So it is. Uh, it's just hard to watch. Like that's all there is to it. I would say that the the. Well, actually, one thing I, I want to just point out dynamics-wise is that um, it, it's probably less of a factor at this point just because Hearst has other things on his mind. But Odell is also taking Hearst's place, right? He likes to play the child to Aunt Lou as if he's her kid, um, right? That was what we saw in the very first instance where they interacted um, on the show. Is that he was like, oh, you know, I'm so glad you're here, Aunt Lou. I can just talk to you about anything. Can you make me food? And blah, blah, blah. You know, this sort of very... Um, you know, motherly sort of uh, interaction. Of course, with the backdrop of I am your employer, I have complete domination over you. Um, but it's still an element. And Odell has, by showing up, is is like, I'm the actual son to this person. I'm the actual person who, who, <laughs> who fits that role. And in addition to that, of course, you have all these people disobeying Hearst, which is something that he absolutely hates so you have Psy who doesn't follow rules on how to set up meetings you have obviously what what Bullock did and all the rest of them and then you also have you know black folks so god forbid not listening to what he he says you know especially those who are in in his uh employ employ um by not you know asking his permission to have Odell come in um so that's all as backdrops to this but I would say that the the real tension at least emotionally is of course what we realize over the course of this episode is Aunt Lou sent Odell to Liberia, and it, the implication is, we don't have any direct evidence, but the implication, strong implication is she sent him there because that was his, the only place she could think of that Hearst didn't have reach. Mm-hmm. That was the only way to get him away from Hearst and to not get him sucked into that world that she had been sucked in, into and lost herself to. Um and her sense of sort of, like, she can't, you know, she's employed, but the implication is she can't really leave, right? What, is she going to leave him? And if she tried to, he would probably use everything that he could to, like, which wouldn't take very much from him because he's, he's uber wealthy and has all the resources in the world to make sure that he made her life miserable until she just gave up and stayed there. And she didn't want that for him. And so at the end, when she's running back to the hotel and she's like, you know, you're not going to take him from me. You're not going to, you know, not him, not not this too. Like, this is the last bit of her life she was able to keep separate and she's about to lose that to him so even if even if he's not going to kill odell it's not clear what exactly she's worried he's going to do but just keeping those worlds separate is something she's so keen on doing and that i think that's that sadness that she thought he was safe and now he's inserted himself back into things is i think where a lot of for me anyway a lot of the emotional tension rides. oh totally and and yeah, it's just like, like I say, it's hard to watch. It is hard to, the fact that he has come here with the intention to con Hearst, 
not just based on everything we know about Hearst, but just that he has walked in at this specific time, like literally this specific morning, Mm. given what has happened last night, and now he's going into this situation. When Hearst has already said to Richardson that he wants to tear the whole place down, mm-hmm. it is just like, he he does not, and, and that he deliberately provokes Hearst by showing up late on purpose. That's an old uh, business tactic, right? Show up late, keep them guessing, you know? <laughs> keep oh them on their God. toes, but like, that's just this very stupid thing to do in this case. I mean, well, like we talked about last week, like, what's some, something that Deadwood is good at is having characters do stupid things but that you appreciate because it is compelling drama. It's not infuriating when they do something that's stupid because it is in character. Exactly. Um, And we don't know a lot about Odell. I don't know that he strikes me as particularly stupid, but he does some, he makes some, let's call them miscalculations in his approach here. I would say he's, he strikes me immediately as being proud and overconfident. And I think that he, he seems savvy, you know? Yeah, exactly. he seems exactly. like sad, but he all, but I, I think that he has maybe, maybe what it is, is just, he's underestimated Hearst to a he's underestimated great Hearst and degree. He's, and he's been misled by his experiences in Liberia, right? What he tells Aunt Lou, and this is an important element, and I don't want to read too much into this because I really am not up on the history of the realities of the, the situation, but, you know, the implication is that he went to Liberia and that in some ways he and other American black folks who had gone to Liberia because right Liberia was a country formed of uh, freed slaves right that's that's mm-hmm. what that country was uh, how that country was founded are then taking advantage of local black folks there from Africa and he basically he says this is what you know how things work there where you know and and they're stupid and they don't know anything and whatever which of course is you know just this horrible cycle and what you see in that incredible scene where he sort of reveals himself to his mother is this transition, like I said, of this this sacrilege and all the rest of it, where she's expecting honorifics and all these other things, and he's like, "No, I don't. I'm not actually. That's not my style. I swear, and I drink, and I, you know, and I've become the thing you tried to keep me from, and I think." now that i can handle a hearst and she's like you absolutely cannot handle hearst that's ridiculous run oh my god this is such a stupid idea and he's like no look at my fancy clothes i'm going to do this and it's gonna be great so it's this sort of you know this attitude of like you know i've i've figured it out and Granted, on you know lesser businessmen, for all we know, that that does work, and he could build himself up to be a, something of a mogul. For all we know, it's just that he's then now gone for the king of kings, and like that's you know a, a bad move. And we know how incredibly vicious Hearst is in this context. So and volatile and in volatile. this in at this particular moment, particularly yes. volatile. Yes, exactly. So yeah, so that's that. That's going to be fun. And I oh, and, and and by the way, you know, I, I think I pointed out last episode when um, Fields goes to Aunt Lou for food um, that I think that they want to take on their trip um, uh, with Hostetler. Um, I had pointed out, I think I hope I did 
that I thought it was kind of a nice moment of solidarity between these characters. And in fact, it absolutely was to the point where Anlu uses that exact moment to try and get Fields to convince Odell to, um, to come back uh, and, and, and leave uh, the Hearst meeting and just book it. Right. That That's what she's trying to get him to do. And um, I like that too, is this, this sort of cross, these characters don't like the only thing they have in common is that they're black. That is the only <laughs> Hostetler has nothing to do with fields has nothing to do with Od- Odell and aunt Lou. Um, but because of this shared experience, they, they have this sense of solidarity, which I, I appreciated. Um, even though it ultimately doesn't come to anything. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I like that. Um, I like that the black characters on the show aren't sort of uh, on an ensemble show aren't like sort of segmented into their own storylines mm. that they can have their own storylines, but that they do get to interact with each other. Um, Cause I feel like a lot of shows would not do that. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and in, it has a weird connective tissue. You have Jane, uh, these like scenes of Jane drinking with, with these characters and not particularly caring um, what, what people think. Uh, she and has if- that great line where she says like, uh, she couldn't possibly care about how popular she is with other white people. Yeah, right. Um, right. That's, that's what she line. she she thinks about when she wakes up and she goes to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's great. No, it's fantastic. And but it's it's it, like it goes beyond that, right? Like so, it was nice when she was drinking with Fields. I think last season, right? Because you're like, oh, that's mm-hmm. that's sweet. And it was, despite all of the racial epithets, you know, like reasonably progressive, you know, for the time period and all that. Um, and it was like, all right, cool. That's that's kind of good. Um, but then here you actually see she's not just doing that. She's helping build the casket for Hostetler. Goes mm-hmm. to the grave site. Obviously, she's going to see Bill as well. But going to see, you know, to see uh, Hostetler buried, and then sticks around to hang out and keep Aunt Lou company while she's freaking out about her kid. And has a drink with her, and like that's that's like a you know that's another level of uh, of companionship that I, I really appreciate it as well. Um, and while I was enjoying that, I was like, "Where's Joni?" And of course, we got that little uh, that fun little sequence at the end of the episode. So um, that's a good good episode for Jane. Yeah, I um, I mean, do you? I I don't really want to jump away from this. Although I don't know how much else I have to say about Odell, but um, the final scene of the episode is so good. Mm. Um, where Joni finds Jane just drunken in a heap somewhere. In and a particularly again, bad way. And again, insists um, that that she come stay with her mm-hmm. and, and picks her up and 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 takes her to uh, to O'Shaughnessy's to to her room. Um, I just love their relationship so much and how how tender it mm-hmm. is. There's not a lot of tenderness on this show, even between like married couple. The few married couples on this show, there is almost no like affection um, between them. And there is very little affection shown between pretty much anyone. So to have these two characters who just really like love each other and care about each other is just so like nice. No, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's really sweet. I think it's it was it's obviously it's it's funny in some ways and how it's how you know Jane delivers her lines here, but um, I think by and large it's just this incredible you know and it and it's you know anybody who's had to deal with um, you know folks who are addicted to anything from like you know hard drugs to even just alcohol, which can also be quite serious and all all these different you know situations. It's it's really hard to keep coming back. But Joni seems to have an affinity for Jane and really 
wants either wants to I, it's you know it's it's not quite clear although it does seem to be implied that she has a strong affinity for her as well but also wants to help her like thinks that it's so it's it's both it's not just you know i'm not i don't want to be friends with you but i don't want you to be on which is more like Trixie and Alma. Like, I don't know that Trixie likes Alma, but she wants her to not be on drugs. Um, and that's a different kind of relationship. But here, it really seems like Joni is invested in several different ways in, in Jane's um, well-being. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, 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 was, I was happy to see that. And I hope that she can get her off the streets and, uh, and into Shaughnessy's um, into, for, for next episode. Um, so, yeah, I would say... Uh, uh, what else do we got? We got, uh, hmm. We have Hearst's movements this episode. Uh, so why, do, why don't we start at the beginning, right? Uh, in terms of where Hearst is at the beginning of the episode, right? He's locked up and you have Charlie sort of uh, <laughs> messing with him in the jail cell, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. He actually leaves him next to the corpse that he had murdered, mm-hmm. um, which incredibly in a scene later on, he is, I think he's talking to Sai. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and like still gaslighting everybody about this. I mean, oh my God, you had the guy murdered. It's this. Which again, incredible... but this is this is again kind of the mind of Hurst that when we first met him last season, we got a taste of mm. this notion that like in his mind, he probably is able to justify the the fact that he didn't murder this guy because he had someone else do it. Like he probably genuinely thinks his hands are clean and is offended by the mm. idea that that um that he's being accused of directly like sticking the knife in this guy's chest. He's like, I didn't do it. My I didn't kill this guy. Mm-hmm. Someone did it on my orders, but I didn't do it. Right. Um and that's something I find really interesting about Hurst, even as he gets kind of more maniacal in this episode and more and his evil gets a little more heightened. Um I like that there is still is that shade of like he's not just like a cackling mustache twirling villain. There, there is something he's able to justify to himself what he does in a way that is obviously not reasonable or logical, but that is, that is like compelling to watch. Um, and that keeps him compelling the more evil he gets. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought that was, I mean, this scene with, with Charlie is really, is really great because again, uh, directly provoking Hearst, is oh, yeah. not a smart move, but the but, but Charlie, Charlie hates him. Hates him so much he can't <laughs> help himself, and like pretends to not know who he is. And when he even when he tells me his name, is like George. It's like uh, George Hurst. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that scene. Yeah, um, um, but actually, it's funny that you say that. I, I hadn't even considered till you said hands clean, but it actually is. It brings up another reason why that Steve scene is in this episode, or why Steve's in this episode much at all, um, except for the fallout from last episode, but there's not much follow-up on it. But he does recognize that even though he didn't pull the trigger on Hostetler, that he's responsible, whereas something is... Either he's just willfully lying to people, which is very possible, or he has twisted it in his own head to believe that he doesn't have anything to do with it. Hearst can't see, even though he didn't turn... You know. They both didn't directly kill anyone, but Steve knows that he had a role in that, and Hearst has convinced himself, or really believes, or who the hell knows. And I think there is a contrast there between these two characters, and, you know, there's this huge class differential, right, like, where (laughs) Steve has no money, and it's like a 
a pauper basically and uh you have um uh hearst who's you know the richest possible person in the universe you know in the scope of this 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 story so it's like a certain amount of wealth and actually i think it's it's farnham who says that in one one uh one moment in the episode what does he say um a man of less wealth would be in restraints. Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote that line down. Yeah, right. Which uh, from E.B. of all people, but he's right, <laughs> and that's exactly it. Is like if that were Steve, or if that were any number of other characters, they would be, and it's just like not how he operates. And I think it's when you get away with things enough, you start to think, well, maybe I'm not doing anything wrong. Exactly. Yeah. How could I possibly be doing something wrong if mm-hmm. I've done it this many times and it's never come back to me? So you know. Um, but what I also want to just point out, and it's something that occurred to me as Dayton Callie, as Charlie Utter, is so good. Just, he's created a character, Charlie Utter is unlike, I feel like, almost any other character that I know of in fiction. He's awkward, like really awkward, um, <laughs> around most people. But he has these really tender moments, of course, with um, with Joni. He has tender. He has sort of tender affection, a little bit for for Seth, even though they're not like really friends at all. Um, he's very protective. I think I would say Seth and and, and Charlie are friends. Maybe not. not Seth like doesn't have Seth, a lot in more more on Charlie's end. Seth doesn't have a lot. Seth kind of <laughs> blows him off a lot. Doesn't have yeah. a lot invested in the friendship. But I think, I mean, Charlie is basically his deputy. Oh no, he absolutely is. He absolutely is. No, I think yeah, and I, I would agree. It's definitely slanted in that direction. Uh, but I think that you see the warmth come from Charlie when he's around Joni, more yeah. more so. Um, no, yeah, uh, and maybe that's a gender thing. I don't, I'm not sure. But but anyway, regardless, is that it's just. It, but then he gets he gets so passionate about like justice issues, whether it has to do with labor or what happened with, um, which is I suppose this is sort of related to labor, but also specifically on just the outrageousness of what um, Walcott did. Uh, to Joni's uh, uh, employees. And I think that that's, uh, there's so many, I mean, it, Charlie could have been a nothing character and they really made him into this. And, and I think Dayton Callie's performance is so, he so rarely gets to revel in a scene or in a moment like this, right? Because it's not really, you know, Charlie's not like a, he's not a sadist. He's not going to torture somebody. He's not going to, but he just has this moment of like victory. Oh, and he also doesn't win very much. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but he has this moment of victory and he really just, you know, revels in it. And I just really appreciated that. Um, and I just, I, yeah, I just want to, I throw a, a, a note out to the Dayton Callie. Cause I just think he does such a fantastic job with this character. Very weird character, but very cool. <laughs> no, I love Charlie. He's, he's, he's a great, I love, I love his <laughs> presence on the show. For sure. Um, so yeah, so then uh, uh, this incredible scene where Hearst comes out of the jail cell and takes the knife out of the guy, uh, the dead dude, and then sort of threatens them with it and like wipes the blood on the banister and walks out. Just intense and mm-hmm. deeply concerning. Um, and that leads Charlie to become incredibly paranoid. <laughs> and uh, and then there's this reality and this conclusion that both Seth and Al independently come to, even though they speak early in the episode, and I guess they sort of know this, but they basically come to this conclusion at the end of the episode, which is, this is going to end in a bloodbath, and yeah. curse is going to well, burn down this town. So, well, one thing we didn't talk about that, um, with regard to Charlie, is that he says to Seth, like, we... 
well, at least what he says is what Bill would do would be to strike first. And specifically, he says, I'm trying to remember, like, with the specifics of his plan, but basically he says, like, you should go down to his mining operation and start some trouble with his men and lead them back into town, and then uh, Al and Sai's operatives can ambush them, and we'll just have it out, and, and we'll hopefully win. That's his That's his plan. Um, to which Saul says, like, that the town would be in, in ruins. <laughs> it would be in shambles. Um, but I think, I don't know, like, that is, I can't see that sort of thing happening on this show, no. but it is a, he makes a... <laughs> He makes a compelling case, I will say. No, absolutely, and and it, it basically the the message is something has to be done. But what yeah. you know this this game of like you know surrogates fighting each other and maneuvering behind the scenes, and even the idea that Sai quite correctly comes to about having you know manipulating Alma's addiction for the sake of getting her claim, uh, which was a, a fine idea. Just the timing is completely wrong. Um, could have you know is it's sort of the phase one phase one's over there's no more phase one phase two is they're out for blood right and and you know hearse is ready to like basically burn down the hotel because he hates it and wants to you know whatever and it's not clear if he really wants it but like that you know he's just he's in the sort of total war mindset and the only thing distracting him is the possibility of more gold <laughs> somewhere else in the world mm-hmm. um so the question is, I guess, depending on whether or not Odell, you know, we, we may not get a conclusion to that. I don't know, but we may not get a conclusion to that story right away. It may be something like Odell leads him away from camp to Liberia and it sort of, de- you know, um, diffuses the situation a bit because it's sort of a powder keg and Hearst leaving town for an episode or two to go check out this claim or to check out, like to at least set up... Um, investigations into this claim uh might keep that from happening i don't know i don't know it's hard to say because i mean especially with with captain turner out of the picture he doesn't really have i mean obviously he has his men in camp we don't really see them ever right um but that would certainly like he doesn't have that kind of presence in camp if he's not there anymore he doesn't really have like an enforcer like captain turner anymore or wolcott or a Wolcott, exactly. Right. He doesn't really, you know, there's no one who can really speak for him or, or, or take his place in a in a conversation or negotiation or whatever. So I think leading him out of camp would certainly, like, I mean, it takes the pressure off. It, it gives you time to actually make a plan. Exactly. So I, I don't know if that, that's going to happen. It may be that he's going to be, you know, firmly rooted in camp for the rest of the, but, you know, you could sort of see it. Also, by the way, I just, there's so many things. I, he really does, it's really, it's good, uh, uh, it's a it's a good performance, but he really just pisses me off so much. He's, he's talking, and he's just like, you know, I was incarcerated overnight mm-hmm. next to a body they said I killed. And it's just like the he just he can't conceive of it. And then when he accuses the people in in camp of being self interested, I'm like, oh my god, this dude is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This dude is so beyond lost <laughs> to the winds of wealth and power that I just, it's, there's no coming back from that. Like, he has to be, like, Anlu has to, like, poison him, basically, is the way this has to go. That's basically the only way this is going to end. 
But again, he's like he because the writing is so good, he remains compelling. Like there's oh, yeah, a lot yeah. of versions of this type of character where it's like, oh, the villain is just crazy and they're just so evil because they love being evil or they're greedy or whatever. And it's just like, you know, it's stupid. It's like, you know, kid stuff. Um, but I think down to the writing and as a, it, it can't be understated, uh, Gerald McRaney's performance. Oh, yeah. Keeps him. He is so watchable and you just feel like you feel his complexities even when they're not showing. Um, and that is so hard to do when you, when you want to write a character who like this, who is just so goddamn evil. Um, <laughs> but you, like, you, you can't really make, he's not like relatable. He's not likable. There's no like other side to him that nope. like, that, that like would, uh, would color how you feel about him, make you see him in a new light. It is just, they write his they write his uh his sinister ways in such a way that it, there are there are shades to it right yeah, yeah. there is no there is no turn with him where it's like oh well he's in more of a gray you know like how like stupid people will write all the time it's like well this character's more in a gray area because like uh they're super evil but one time they looked at a flower and <laughs> <laughs> well i mean and- <laughs> i mean not not to say that this is I would say a good example of that would be like Al, right? Like, who is not a good guy, but, you know, they give, they humanize in a lot of ways that they yeah, don't, that they don't. You can humanize first. a character without making them like, without making them sympathetic or relatable or anything like that. You can still make them feel like a whole human while still being tremendously terrible. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that with, uh, with Hearst, they don't even bother to humanize him, but I think the part of the reason he works is that he he doesn't i mean cer- certainly there are like you know the the what, what, what am i thinking of like um like norman osborn type characters right like yeah and and it's actually it's part of the reason not that i don't want to use norman osborn as an example a bad example but he came to mind as an archetype of like rich bad guy kind of thing um, and I, you know, from the I limited exposure to the comics, I'll, I'll admit, but in the other forms of media that I've encountered him, uh, spectacular Spider-Man, great show, um, and uh, you know, video games and, and other other media. Um, what I like about or the best versions of Norman Osborn, the best version, I guess, of of Hearst, because of course Hearst was a real person, and you know, uh, historically is one that maps onto our understanding of how real life people who fit that archetype might behave or how we imagine them to behave or, or how they think. Right. And I think we have a pretty good evidence that there are people who are exactly like George Hearst is portrayed in this. And there mm-hmm. are people, there have been people who have come out and said that um you know george hurst was actually like much more benevolent than they're letting on in the show and it's like okay maybe that's true maybe that isn't but if if not george hurst there were people exactly like the way he's portrayed in this so like it doesn't matter <laughs> it could have been you know rockefeller came into town in in uh, you know or carnegie or any of these other people like who cares the point is the uh or vanderbilt or whatever like the point is 
he represents that kind of real historical and modern day figure. And I think that that's part of the staying power of the character is that we're able to understand him politically, emotionally, whatever. Um, so that like, we don't need to humanize him because like we get that we understand that. And that by living in a society that has those hierarchical structures, those, you know, this sort of very capitalist society we live in, we immediately understand that kind of character. Um, and it's a character that, like, for example, Alma doesn't really map onto, even though she would be at the top of that that hierarchical structure as well in Deadwood. And up until Hearst arrived, really was. Um, so it's not like there haven't been other characters, but he really just he really fits the worst possible version of that. So, um, yeah. So uh, yeah, there's a bit of um, a bit of uh, planning and scheming that goes on with uh, with him and and um, and Sai. Uh, where he, yeah, Sai's not enjoying this relationship. It seems like. <laughs> no, not not a bit. Um, and why would he? <laughs> um, no, this scene again. You know, this is sort of what I had been referring to in terms of how, the way this episode develops Hurst's kind of just malevolence. Uh, that he is like physically abusing Sai Tolliver. And like choking him and grabbing his ear and saying that he's just getting his getting his frustration out by doing it. Um, that is a obviously he's you know he has come close to doing that to people before. He says he came close to raping Alma. He says yep. uh, and, and other things. Um, but this is just sort of once one rung up the ladder of like of I, again, there's no other word for it. Just evil. Yeah. Um, he's a villain. And they keep, they keep, they, they come, they come perilously close to making him just very, uh, like too evil in a way. But then again, just because, like you say, because of who he was as a person, it, it just historically the, the, his status, uh, his stature in society, um, it doesn't really matter if he was actually a good person or, and again, like when you're that wealthy and you have like a legacy that continues even to today, like we talk about, um, of course there are going to be people writing that you were actually the greatest guy, right? Like, (laughs) um, it's, it's hard to, not that the piece you're referring to was necessarily like all made up. I, can't say I don't know. It probably wasn't, but of course you're going to have people who are like, "Well, look at all these good things he did." Yeah, and all I mean these that's people the, he helped. The, the hagiographies that will be written about Bill Gates. I mean, oh, yeah, exactly. God. Or Steve Jobs or Steve that Jobs. have been written about Steve Jobs. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> or I think you know even easier. You know Jeff Bezos, right? It's getting, well. Yeah. You know, there, was, there was that time he gave like at least a thousand dollars to that one school. So, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely, and I think, and by the way, it's it's particularly bad because, of course, George Hearst's legacy with William Randolph Hearst, who ran a newspaper, means you then really controlled the narrative mm-hmm. around you. Uh, I mean, and, the Hearst legacy became a publishing legacy. Yes, exactly, and I, you know, not to the last thing I'll say on this in terms of real people uh, separate that are not in the show, but like Bill Gates owns a column in the Guardian. 
So, you know, whatever. <laughs> just like, and he's not the only rich person who owns a column. And he like personally sponsors, it's like on international development. And surprise, and like he's like funds most of Vox. Like, surprise, they're really super positive on all of the Gates Foundation uh, activities around the world. So, I mean, not know. to go there, but <laughs> like Hearst's, one of his descendants right now is dating Chris Hardwick. Um, <laughs> wow. And get, when all the stuff about Chris Hardwick came out, uh, the uh, the media surrounding that was perhaps uh, you could call it more skeptical than it might have otherwise been. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Not saying anything. Just you know, just throwing it out there. Just leaving it out there. You know, fair to say that that might have made an impact. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, I know. No, but exactly. And so, you know, we we talk about these historical versions of characters and, it, you know, it's not like we've examined the documents and go, actually, Hearst was like this. It's just that, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain of salt. And also no one knows what he was, was like, like behind that. the scenes and no one knows what he was like behind closed doors. And I mean, just to kind of take off the subtext of our conversation, <laughs> he was rich, so I don't trust him. <laughs> a, f- a fair point. Um Exactly. Uh, and, and you know, uh, like, who's to say? Who's to say? But like I said, it doesn't even matter about George Hurst. It's the broader picture and his class of people. Like, we know what the robber barons did. <laughs> we know for a fact what mm-hmm. happened. Like, we don't need to know if George Hurst personally was, of like, a, you know, this malevolent shithead. <laughs> like, who cares? Um, right. So, uh, we should, oh, we should talk about Alma. Uh, quickly as well. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I don't know. I don't really have that much to say about this, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's, uh, so I, I mean, I think what's most intriguing about this is how much we get to learn about Leon. That's true. Um, this is more lines than Leon's ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I like about how this plays out is, first of all, I love this introduction of him wrestling with the realities of his, uh, um, of the the, and he makes very he takes a very logical approach to the situation. He goes, "If I kill Alma by overdosing her, her, uh, or giving you know giving her basically a hyper concentrated drug, I will be the only one who knows that Sai ordered that, and therefore, I will be the next one to be killed. And so basically, by carrying out this order, I'm sending my own death warrant. Which is a very reasonable thing to think." What he doesn't count on is Sai immediately changing his mind and saying, actually, I'm not doing this. And in the interim, his conscience gets, there's a lot of conscience play here, but this conscience gets a better, better. and also, you know, we know uh, Leon's a super racist character. Um, so it's another racist character having this, like, moment of conscience. But, although, no, again, in either case, really for, yeah, anyway, not for a black person, but for, 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 for Alma. And he goes into the bank and he tells her, I, I would stop if I were you, and I'm not going to be your dealer anymore. Uh, and then I love the scene where Trixie pulls out a, her little mini pistol gun thing, which I think she used to kill somebody in the first, like the first episode. I think it was her. Somebody did. Um, but I, I think it's the same kind of one. gun. Yeah. It's when they, and it was a true story. I like, it was from an actual Deadwood like thing where someone got shot in the eye. Um, one of the, the prostitutes shot like a, a patron. Um, so anyways, I think it's the same gun or it's a similar kind of gun, but in any case, um, and she pulls him to the side and he's like, she's like, all right, enough with this. Um, and I kind of like that moment because it's this moment of solidarity between these two characters who, again, 
as we saw in their weird relationship in the beginning of the show, they have nothing in common and no reason to support each other. But she really does try and look out for her. And I really, I appreciated that uh, moment. And I also like that, you know, <laughs> Leon's like, I've already severed ties there. Um, and then connecting this to, to Al's story a little bit, what do you make of uh, Trixie's brief uh, interaction with Al in this episode? Because I think, I don't know, I had, a, I had a brief thought about that. Um, why don't you go ahead and then I'll, I'll get back to it. So, so I, for me, I just kind of thought it was, um, they kind of have this, Al insults her throughout this entire meeting. Uh, and it's a very brief meeting, but it does sort of seem like he he says this one thing where he says, you know, I, I, I'll put it in much nicer terms, but he says, I don't appreciate when people don't realize that they've basically gotten a boost up in their lot in life and that they should appreciate that and hold on to it and fight for it uh, because they've escaped basically the, the, uh, the cycle and you've, you, you escaped your status, your, your sort of um, situation as a process. Now, of course, Al helpfully uh, ignores his role in perpetuating that cycle and having been her uh, employer. But he says, basically, you know, you've gotten out, you've learned how to do math, and you got a job at the bank. Don't mess it up. <laughs> like, this is your chance out of this hellish, you know, misery that I was a part of, and I am now perpetuating on more people. You've gotten out enough. And it's this sort of, and, and she's like, you know, she, and her returns to him back, you know, isn't even to inform him of anything. It's almost this weird, like, mentor mentee sort of relationship it's very weird i don't know i, I but i just it I flagged up for me as m- maybe where they're going with that uh, that interaction so yeah i think that just about does it uh extremely brief scene with blazanov just mentioning that he's reflecting on how he was sent from russia uh, by his parents and he's still dealing with the reality of seeing a, a body in the street with a knife in it um not really much there but for some reason we're getting some Blazanov's uh, backstory. Um, you have Al again introducing himself as Albert Swearingen, but only when he goes to see the Bullocks, which is also kind of a weird motif in the, in the show. Hmm. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, yeah, the thing we didn't really talk about was Dan, um, and it's not a huge sort of. It, it basically, it's confirming everything that we talked about last episode and things it's that just sort of repeating what al told to johnny i do by the way like i guess i do want to take note that uh johnny's had a lot to do this season mm. um a lot more than he did in seasons one and two and i think that's really good because i i am growing to like this character he's the performers they, they let him kind of loosen up um and do a little bit more as a p you know he was kind of introduced as just like the dumb comic relief com- yeah comic relief henchman but he has um there's a sweetness to him that I really like. Yeah, and he really does seem to care about Dan, right? And he's mm-hmm. ex- he he like Dan is extremely you know he's not nearly as useful, so he doesn't get assigned tasks and things. But he's just as loyal as Dan is to Al. So, um, yeah, and I also I just you know you mentioned earlier this interaction between Al and uh, and Seth, and I, I like that Al lays out that one of the things he sees is similar between him and Seth is that neither of them are going to f- run from a fight, right? They're not ready mm-hmm. to flee Deadwood uh, or see, I, I guess it's not just fleeing. It's also ceding it to, you know, if you leave then you basically say Hearst, the place is yours have at it. Um, so, yeah. So I, yeah, we get a little, a bit of uh, a little bit more insight into a couple of these characters. 
Um, oh, and uh, just on, on Alma's, uh, uh, sorry, I know we're jumping around a little, but uh, just briefly on Alma, uh, Ellsworth basically says, and this is actually quite a significant moment, that he, we don't need to be married for me to be a father to Sophia, which implies, yeah. is, is he leaving her? Is he, are they getting divorced? That's, we should, I guess we should just, just briefly on that. It's because it is a really quick scene. Right. But, um, I guess that is, think that is the implication. Maybe not, if, if not leaving her, then at least, I mean, he's obviously moving out. Yeah. Um, which is just, it's exactly what, what needs to happen right now is yeah. with her addicted and all the rest. Yeah. It's just bad, bad news. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that's, I think that's most of the episode. Uh, I'll just say as my last, uh, my last little note here is, um, the final, uh, song of the credits is, uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den, which doesn't really have any deeper meaning other than that it is a very bad situation for everyone. So, um. <laughs> I think that's how I, I did listen this week. That's how I see Odell going into that meeting. Yes, exactly. Odell in that meeting, uh, uh, Al and Seth just being in the town with Hearst on the rampage. It's, uh. A bad situation. And it's almost scarier, by the way. You know, we know all of Al's henchmen. We don't even know who works for Hearst, right? Yeah. Who he Yeah, well, that's off. what I was saying earlier, that he has men in town, but we never see them. We never see them, right? Exactly. And I actually think that in some ways that is that is scary because he can just hire, he can pay anyone. He can pay, make any of his workers under threat of death or a payment or whatever, just stab someone, right? He can just do that. He just has that capacity, which is deeply intense. Um so yeah, uh, next week we have a fantastically titled episode. Unauthorized <laughs> Cinnamon. Unauthorized Cinnamon. Wow. Uh, so very excited for that. And, that uh, rules. Yeah, let's, uh, let's discuss it next week. Okay. Okay.